If you know NLP at all, you know my next guest. He is responsible for so much in the world of NLP, from the spelling strategy to the allergy cure, and of course, sleight of mouth. To fully articulate his contributions to NLP and coaching would take more time than we have. So let me just say, here's my very special guest, Robert Diltz. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Robert Diltz, it is so good to see you, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing actually very, very well. It's a beautiful day here in Santa Cruz. And uh, blessedly, we didn't have a fire here this year. They're farther away. We had to to evacuate last year because the fire got that close. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're, I'm just happy that we're <laughs> we got a nice yeah, weather here. I'm I'm happy for you. We are having a beautiful day here as well. I'm in the Hudson Valley of New York State. Right. Um, moved up from New York last spring during COVID, and we've stayed here. Um, we had a hurricane passing through here yesterday. Oh, right. You had Ida decided to visit. Yeah. Yeah, that was exciting, and it was. Big. We had another hurricane like a week ago. There was everybody was going like, "Okay, look out for the hurricane." We were all batting down the hatches, and Ida was like, "Yeah, that happened down in Louisiana." But yeah. then they didn't mention so much that it was coming here right yeah. next. And it was it was much bigger than wow. Hurricane Henri was. But you know how those French hurricanes are. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> They're more nuanced, let's say. <laughs> But, you know, it's a beautiful day today. It's amazing. It's just sunny. It's lovely. It's, it's, it's ideal. Anyway, let's talk about other things. Okay. <laughs> we could go on about the weather. but We could, but I'm not sure that's what people are tuning in for. So um, if I was to give a proper introduction and really, like, read your whole whole bio, we'd be here all day because it's a, it's a book. Your bio is a book. Um, but you are, like, gosh... It's, it's amazing for me to have you here. You are my main teachers, one of my main influences. Oh, it's true. I mean, God, you've, you've influenced my life big time. Um, but not just mine. I mean, you're one of the co-creators of NLP. You co-wrote NLP Volume 1. You created Sleight of Mouth. I mean, there is so much that you've done. The, the NLP allergy process, the spelling strategy. That I mean, it's it's it goes on and on and on and on and on. So... I would love to ask you about all those things, but we don't really have that much time. So <laughs> you have to do, focus on the ones that have to do with coaching, I guess. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. But let me, before we get to coaching, because I will get to coaching, this is after yeah. all the Essential Coaching Skills podcast, and we do want to talk about that. And I know that you've been working in that field quite a lot with Stephen yeah. Gilligan, particularly like generative coaching things. So I'll definitely come back to that. But um, can I just ask you a little bit about sleight of mouth? Because um, sure. <laughs> we, we, you know, we have a com- in common. A, I learned sleight of mouth from you back yeah. in 1987 with you and Todd Epstein. Wow. Yes. Wow. A long time ago doing the master practice training. And, um, and then I came back to New York and he started 
teaching my friends who were interested in mostly other trainers for Tony Robbins about it. And it, I started just doing these little informal trainings for people. But then later when your book came out, Sleight of Mouth book, I was surprised that you didn't have those maps in there. And so some, that, are, some are in there. I think some are. In there. Uh, no, not so much. <laughs> that's, that's literally why I wrote my book on the user's guide to sleight of mouth because I wanted to show people how you taught me. Yeah. Having having all those maps there. Yeah. yeah, The the icon map, because for me, that was how I remembered it, you know? And so, um, so anyway, thank you for for, for letting me write that book. And um, because it's, it's gone a long way from my career, let me tell you, but how did sleight of mouth originate? How did it, how did you make that stuff up? And here's another question for you. Yeah. Would you do it differently today, knowing what you know now? Yeah, well, those are two good, good questions. Um, so that, so where, I mean, it, 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 I mean, in the book, I tell about the origin of it as well. I mean, for part, partially, you know, I was always interested in, um, you know, language as a tool for persuasion. And, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I got, into NLP, in fact, when I was studying politics, I actually wasn't studying psychology; I was studying politics. Oh goodness, I did not know. So you're, you're a politics major. I was a politics major. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I start. I started as an art major, then I switched to uh, physics, and then I switched to politics, and then ended up in NLP or uh, or thereabouts. Um, but yeah. Do so, you have a degree from Santa Cruz? Yes, it's it's called it's a it's an independent major. I actually made up my own major, and and in fact, NLP Volume One was my senior thesis. Oh my God, I had no I just, idea that was. I submitted that as my senior thesis. Wow. Um, so and, and my degree is in behavioral technology. So it's a but you know it's it's a degree that anybody actually, if they followed the curriculum, could get. Um, but I don't know if that curriculum still exists anywhere. <laughs> Uh, so, so I, anyway, I was studying politics at that time when I was first getting involved in, uh, in NLP. And I remember, um, actually the first, I think the first paper I ever turned into John Grinder, I was taking a linguistics class with him uh-huh. and I decided to use the, the patterns of the meta model on Plato's dialogues, uh, you know, the Socratic dialogues. And so was showing how Socrates used the meta model. Huh. And I was, but I also looked at other, you know, political things. And, and the point is, I realized, okay, you could, the meta model tells you some things that people are doing and, and representational system language tells you other things, but there was a whole lot of things that uh, people were doing, whether, whether it was uh, Abraham Lincoln or, um, you know, I, I mean, I was, I studied everybody. It could have been, you know, Jesus, Hitler, uh, you know, all the people who use language to, change people's mm-hmm. lives and change the world. And of course there was Milton Erickson as well. And, um, and I was just thinking, well, you know, that I can't, I can't get, there's things that they're doing that are not describable by a particular meta model pattern, nor a, just this, it's more involved in representational systems. So I was trying to figure out, well, what is it that, that, how would I express what that pattern is? And then, of course, uh, the the big thing that sort of put it together was was doing a program uh, with Richard Bandler in Washington D.C. in the early '80s, and he started going into this whole thing with somebody where he 
you know, he was, it, you know, it was, I'm sure some kind of a teaching point to the, for the class, but he started creating this kind of whole paranoid reality. You know, they, he picked some poor guy in the audience and started saying, this guy's out to get me and started making up all these reasons. And, and then telling that he's asking the whole audience, you know, help me, can't you help me? And whatever somebody would say, he would turn it around and, you know, whatever they tried to do to, to, to change it, he would, you know, reframe it back. And at a certain point I realized, oh, I could actually follow what he was doing and I would have been able to repeat it myself, mm-hmm. which is always, which is always the, what Bandler and Grinder's first criteria for modeling was. If you can't do it yourself, you can't model it. You know, you, you can, you could describe it, but unless you can actually do it, you're not really modeling it. So I started realizing, oh yeah, I, I could do all that. And then uh, I started thinking about, okay, here's somebody says this, you could say that, 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 that. And that started leading to those uh, sleight of mouth patterns. Cool. So, yeah. And and how did you come up with that? I think highly essential um, icon representational map. Well, so, yeah, so I think that the idea is that the, the idea would be each of these sleight of mouth patterns, you could say, is an operator on a belief statement. So, you know, a belief statement being either, you know, foundationally a cause and effect, you know, if then or this causes that or an equivalence, you know, the meta model, this means that or this equals that. And so each one is an operator on one or both parts of that statement. And so the the uh, the icons were just to sort of uh, try try to again, try to iconically represent what that operation was doing. Is it is it turning it back on itself? Is it taking it in another direction? Is it going up levels? Is it chunking something down? Is it chunking something up? You know, so that's the that's how that came was just tr- try to take these patterns and visually represent those those operations and just yeah. thinking iconically. Oh, that's great. And to me, it really is is how I keep track of those things. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's just absolutely brilliant work. Thank you. Well, thank you. For, for, from the world for doing it. And how would you do it differently now if you were to be doing it differently now? I mean, well, creating it for the first time now. Um, you know, I think, I think in, in general, the patterns are still the, the, the operators, you know, what I'm, I'm, I am eventually going to get a, um, a uh, volume two out. And uh, I, I, currently been doing a whole series of programs called the magic of language so i'm sort of simplifying you know revisiting simplifying a lot of those but i think what i would do is i mean what one of my plans for the next book anyway would be to have uh for example uh jokes for each one uh visual a visual example of how each one would work, you know, so it's kind of take that icon that you have and say, well, if you had to draw a picture that showed what that's doing, how would you do it? And um, I think, you know, the, the, always the big challenge with anything that's, that's hyper verbal like that is that if you just get taken up into the left brain, uh, that's not really where the, the, the action is happening. And that's, I think where people get stuck is, they try to go up in, into the head and figure it out. Whereas many of those operations are not done purely verbally. <laughs> they're, you know, they're expressed verbally, 
but the shift of perception because because what they all are an operation that shifts perception in some way but that shift of perception is not is not verbal it has other you know to, to get to one of those uh reframes one of these verbal reframes you would say i need to use whole other parts of my nervous system sometimes it's going to be more somatic sometimes it's going to be more visual so um I think I would probably try to integrate more of that into it somehow. Nice. But I think the patterns themselves are fairly, you know, uh, I, st- I still think I, I, I wouldn't, don't think I'd take any of them and discard them. Uh, yeah. There might be some that I, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure if there would be things that I would, that I would add or not. Yeah, but, right. Um, right. I don't want to spend too much time on this. I could talk to you all day <laughs> about this one subject, um, but I, I will try to refrain. But I will say I, I've taught it to a lot of people over the years. And um, for real estate people, I found out that they didn't really want to learn a lot of different patterns. They wanted to have real specific things to say. So when she says this, say that. When she, he says that. Right, right. So I, I, I kind of dumbed it down a bit. I, may, I reduced it down to like right. seven, seven patterns. Yeah, sure. So a different icon arrangement of the of the patterns that were seemingly most useful. Yeah, I think sub creating subsets for different types of things is probably makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and also That's what I was saying I, in, in the magic of language, I'm I'm reducing it. I'm taking certain subsets because it's it's particularly the the magic of language is particularly for you know um, uh, dealing with beliefs in you know challenging circumstances so uh-huh. it's looking at what when people are dealing with with our current you know pandemic and other sort of situations and how that's impacting their life what would be a subset that would be most essential for people to be able to you know yeah get 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 uh different perspectives get get outside of the box that they're stuck in if you want. right 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 and i've by the way i've often when i when i do teach it i always teach your original four patterns that I learned from you. And um, I remember a lot of the stories that you told. In fact, the one about cancer causes death. Yes. Your your mother um, having gone through that process. And it seemed to me that it was true, if my memory serves correctly, that the the one pattern that really worked most effectively for her was the metaphor pattern. Yeah. Talk about about the, your your cells are like a grassy field and, the sheep yeah. are, yeah, like the, white sheep are the, the, the white cells that are yeah. grazing the grass. And, right, yeah. exactly. Is that, is that an accurate remembering on my part that that was the thing that was most effective for your mother? Yeah, I, I think that's one. You know, I mean, th- it's, it's always tricky to know because uh, there's certain ones that resonate, but it doesn't right. mean that the others wouldn't, wouldn't ha- you know, maybe that one's the, it's kind of like that's the, the, the straw and the, the yeah, final yeah. straw, if you will. Sure. Yeah, so, yeah. But yeah, I would say that then I think that's probably an interesting point that for certain types of things um, you would have, you know, certain patterns would be more relevant. For example, in the, in the, um, the other thing I'm doing for the, the volume two is finding a particular iconic character who represents each one of these patterns. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you take uh, somebody like like uh, uh, Plato or Socrates, in the Socratic dialogues, it's it's almost all counterexample. 
So that would be, you know, you'd have this kind of Socrates as a counterexampleist. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody like Freud was not a counterexampleist in the work he did. In his psychoanalytic work, he did what we, he did what we would call metaframe. Mm-hmm. No matter what was going on, you know, here's the reason you believe that. You know, right. that's what psychoanalysis is. Yeah, yeah. You believe that because of your, you know, Oedipal this or that or this. Sure. So, so he never did, he didn't really chunk it down or do other things. It was always that one. Somebody like Jesus, however, was constantly applying to self, you know, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, why do you see the the moat in your, that person's eye and you don't see the log in your own eye, you know, uh, right. uh, uh, judge not, uh, you know, lest you be judged. It's all applied right. to self, which is very interesting. So you, if you find characters that, where their primary modality was one of these uh, patterns. And, you know, so, so somebody like Erickson was very mm-hmm. interesting because Erickson was mostly consequence. You know, somebody says, I'm Jesus Christ. Oh, well, you must have experience as a carpenter. You know, that's a consequence of that belief. You know, oh, uh, I, I think I'm going to go into outer space. Okay, well, let's get your, let's get ready, you know, get all the stuff that you need to go in there and get it over with. So Erickson constantly went to consequence. And so it's actually rather interesting if you take um, people that we would recognize that have, uh, you know, that have, have a, you know, a, a sort of, uh, let's say, archetypal, we, we, we know of them, we know how they, they, we know something about them, and then they represent certain patterns. But then you can also see, as you were saying, why a certain pattern might have um, more more impact for a certain kind of issue then, you know. Yeah. yeah I've often um, thought that the metaphor pattern itself often packs the most punch, that if it you does. get, if you get the, like a good metaphor that's really illustrative of your, you know, yeah. your point, what you're trying to say, people will often go like, oh, yeah, I see. Of course, Erickson, by the way, of course, Erickson did metaphor a lot as well. He also so, did metaphors, yes. Those two things. But yeah, I think that metaphor analogy is a really good one. Um, because as Gregory Bateson, he was one of the other, one of our other big influences in the early days, used to say, everything is a metaphor for everything else. So, uh, because, you know, in a, in a systemic world, everything is a system and every system is a metaphor for every other system. Uh that's going to illustrate some aspect of it. I saw a very interesting, cute quote today from Gregory Bateson's, um, whatever that book is called. <laughs> uh, uh, there's, well, there's Steps to the Ecology of Mind. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Where, um, he's having a discussion with his son. Do you know this one? And his son says, um, why is it, Dad, that um, dads are always smarter than sons? Is that true? Dads are always smarter than sons? And the father says, yes, it is. So that's always true. So, well, who invented the steam engine? Said, oh, well, that was, um, I'm, I'm not remembering the answer. <laughs> um, Fulton. Uh, Fulton, yes, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> and he said, James Fulton did it. said, well, why didn't James Fulton's father invent the steam engine? <laughs> very good. <laughs> Would have been a much better story if I knew all the people. <laughs> <laughs> But it's a good story, nevertheless. Hey, um, so Gregory Bateson was was part of. Was he a, a professor of yours? Did you take classes? Yeah. From him? I took Ecology of Mind from Gregory. And that was a class. 
Yeah, it was a class. And then I also did an independent study uh, under Gregory's, um, you know, uh, what his, he, he wasn't teaching it, but it was under his supervision that was on, uh, it was called Studies in Schizophrenia. So it was all, uh, we, were, we had to spend at least something like 12 hours a week with somebody diagnosed as schizophrenic or psychotic and was, you know, learning about how that how they functioned and in in what way did you spend time with schizophrenics did you several different ways uh one was volunteering at a local facility locked ward facility uh this was back you know this was back in the uh mid to late 70s when uh i think it was ronald reagan was the governor of uh california and had more or less (laughs) cut a lot of the budget to (laughs) deal with uh mental illness. And so they were putting people in these for-profit things where they mostly just got chemotherapy. You know, they would, they would lock them in there and give them drugs, Thorazine or something. Yeah. But they would, you know, you could volunteer and do things there to help, uh, you know, like I would go and take my guitar and play music or play the piano or something, or I would, you know, go, but it, would, it was an opportunity to interact with people. There was also also volunteered at another place that was um, it's called the Soteria House, which was the opposite idea. They didn't give any drugs that wasn't locked, but they had their view was that people who had these kind of psychotic episodes were in. It was a way of, of responding to, you know, some kind of um, emergency. And so if they just had people who cared about them there to support them mm-hmm. they would get better. So it's really interesting having these two completely different. Wait, now, now, neither of them actually had any way of working psychologically with, with the patients, but so I don't, I don't know that either one was more effective. But it was actually interesting to have that experience. Wow. Yeah, which which brings me to um, the early days of NLP. NLP mm-hmm. seemed to really d- be derived from well, um, Bandler and Grinder obviously with their work together, but it seemed like when they started modeling people, you know, NLP could be applied to modeling golfers or modeling anything. It's about, you know, the system that the person does to achieve excellence in whatever field it might be, piano or whatever else. Yeah. Um, but they mostly chose therapists. It seemed like Virginia Satir, Fritz Perls, um, Milton Erickson, obviously, Frank mm-hmm. Farrelly. Um, so that NLP seemed to be a kind of therapy model. Um, it, it seemed like to me that, you know, when we were doing NLP processes, it was about personal change to become better. I think in the beginning, because it was, um, you know, because they were modeling therapists, I mean, they, they were always very clear that, that modeling was modeling, you know, and that but they, and they had just started that way, partially because, that's how they, you know, because Bandler had been very engaged in doing this work with, uh, you know, the, I don't know if you know the story, but Steve Andreas, who was John Stevens at that time, wrote a book called, um, uh, I think it was called uh, Gestalt Therapy Verbatim. Oh, yeah, I know that book. He took uh, transcripts of... Wait a minute, that's, that's Steve Andreas? Who yeah. wrote I had no idea. I've read that book like in college that's amazing that was steve andreas and he got into that because his mother was uh, was with fritz pearls he was of course also a psychologist but oh his sort of hanging out a lot with fritz pearls and so he did that book and that was a very popular book and uh, this other publisher wanted to do the same thing 
uh, a guy named, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, he, he did science and behavior books. Um, I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, this other publisher wanted to do something similar. And so he had a bunch of tapes of uh, pearls and hired Bandler, who was like a college kid, to go and do these tapes. And, the, and Bandler put together a book called Eyewitness to Therapy. Uh-huh. Was this, this publisher's uh, science and behavior books who published the first Bandler and Grinder books. By the way. So Bandler, when you say he did the tapes, he transcribed them? He, no, he, he chose which parts would go into the book. So he was sort of out of all these many, many things, he was doing that. And then the same guy wanted to do the same publisher wanted to do the same thing with Virginia Satir. And so he sent Bandler up to, uh, to do recordings of her in somewhere in, in uh, British Columbia uh, doing a seminar. And so according to Bandler, he was just sort of monitoring the recording out of one ear and listening to Pink Floyd in the other. <laughs> but at the end of this, whatever, seven day thing, um, Virginia was supposed to have, other people were supposed to be doing what they'd learned from her and they didn't learn very much. And Bandler realized he could do it. And so that's when he started running these gestalt groups up at his, up this, his place where he was living and uh, had kind of reconnected with Grinder and basically got Grinder to, you know, Grinder in that, in those days was big into, he, he went, he didn't, he thought, uh, you know, uh, psychotherapy and personal development was bourgeois. You know, he was a, he had just written a, a, a book on Marxist economics and, you know, he was a, he was a radical professor. And so he, I remember one of the first th- things I ever heard about Grinder was him organizing a, uh, uh, a protest of having students lie across the freeway to in protest of the Vietnam war. So he was, he was big into that side. Wow. So he thought this personal development stuff was, petty yeah and bandler was very convincing as you might imagine got grinder to come and just sit in on one of these classes he was doing with frank pusilic back in those days and um and grinder got was really intrigued because he could see the power this wasn't just people he could see that you could use this for for really big change it wasn't just you know uh, t groups or you know these kind of things that people used to do so he made his famous pact with Bandler, which was, he said to Bandler, if you can teach me to do what you're doing, I'll tell you what you're doing. And that's how NLP started. <laughs> and, and, he, and it wasn't just a tit for tat thing, by the way, because Grinder was saying, I can't tell you what you're doing until you teach me. It's just like, I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you I, can't, I can't make a, I can't uh, outline a language that I don't speak. So I actually have to learn it first and then I can actually tell you what you're doing. But Grinder realized that Bandler was doing something interesting with language. And so that's where it all started. Wow, that's a fantastic story. I have another question for you just because I've never asked this to anybody who would know the answer. Um, Carlos Castaneda, was, was, were they interested in? <laughs> very, very, very much so, very much so. Uh, they, used to be, they used to be, in fact, they would always have like uh, Richard was Don Gennaro and John was Don Juan at the beginning. And then they would kind of switch these different roles, you know, where, you know, one was the more digitalizer, if you will, which was Grinder. And Bandler was more the, you know, um, get out there and, you know, do something, make it happen. 
And so, uh, I, yeah, but they were very much into the Castaneda books. I remember Journey to Ixland was a big, big one that we all were reading. You know, they, their whole thing was being able to get to those levels without the drugs. Uh-huh. You know, how do you, how do you get to these types of experiences without taking the drugs? Because I, I can tell you, guarantee you, there was, there was no, in, in all of those early programs we did, none of it had anything to do with like psychedelic drugs but it had a lot to do with altered states of consciousness yeah altered states and it was it was all about that you know how do you get to these different states of awareness yeah questions which some of us are still asking yes (laughs) and still seeking yes yeah Yeah, that's amazing so change personal history is that something that came out of the carlos yeah Yeah. Uh, well you know at least the title yeah, I, you know, that's a good question. Change personal history also relates to the fact that they were really big into programming. I mean, literally computer programming. You know, they, I don't know if you know this, but they were the, they were some of the first dealers of Apple II computers. Oh, I bought my first Apple computer from them because in those days, like 1975, all you had to do, if you bought five computers from Apple, you were a dealer. <laughs> You got the dealer discount. And so they would get five and sell them to us. Wow. And I, I probably have a very early serial number, Apple II, in my garage somewhere. Um, but they were, I mean, they were into programming. And, and a change history is a term used in computer programming. If you go, if you go and you update a program, you keep a change history, it's called. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it was that combination of that and the Castaneda's stuff that, you know, made it, made it uh, resonate. That's so interesting. Well, okay, we have to move on. <laughs> let's, let's fast forward a few decades. <laughs> Oh, just fast forward one decade. Um, where do you think, yeah. in, your, in your knowledge base, um, things shifted from an early NLP, NLP being a, a changed technology that was sometimes referred to, I used yes, to as, say, as, yeah. therapy, yeah, yeah. to coaching. When did it shift to like being, I, I'm going to do NLP coaching? You know, it, it started shifting in the, in the, 1980s and i think that's when coaching started becoming more of a thing anyway um i know you know when i started for example i I started working with a lot of people in companies and companies would even come and ask to to help somebody but they they um they didn't want to call it therapy because people would reject that so it was you know supporting somebody in making a change um, where you didn't have to assume they were they were broken. You didn't you know mm-hmm. you didn't have to give them a DSM three diagnosis. Or right. something. And I think you know NLP from its very beginning was you know outcome oriented. You know e- even I mean in, in NLP one that's the you know we'd say it's it's about getting a desired state and going to, you know putting all your resources towards getting that desired state. That's always the focus. Mm-hmm which is really different than saying the problem is the focus and trying to fix the problem. Even though things like the, you know, the, the phobia technique was became popular because it was a fix it thing, but 
NLP in general was more about what's your desired state, where do you want to go, what steps you need to get there, what's the strategy for doing it. I mean, if you look at NLP volume one, by that time, we were saying it's not just about, you know, therapy, it's education, and it's about business, and it's about all these other things. But they hadn't worked out all of the different models and protocols yet for that. So, you know, in, in even, I think it was 19, probably 1980, that Grinder wrote Precision with uh, Michael McMaster, which was a, a business, ver- it's called the Precision Model, was, a, oh, okay. was just for business. And what I think, so I, I first started using the word coaching in the, in the 80s, uh, and it became more and more, you know, in the, starting in the early 80s. I, I was influenced uh, probably in that, and, and, and I know Grinder was as well, because he, you know, Grinder had been, a, was a, I think he was even a ranked tennis player at some time in his earlier life. Hmm. But Timothy Galway wrote The Inner Game of oh, sure. Tennis. And Galway started the whole sort of idea of inner game uh, as, a, as a sort of beginning of coaching as well as a sports, you know. Right, sport. right. Yeah. So now, that book from, again, from my college days from the 70s. Yeah. 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 So, so I, you know, it was very, to me, it's something that was gradual. Um, yeah. And at the very beginning, you know, nobody really even, I mean, coaching was all over the map of what it could be. And I think it's become much more, um, you know, obviously it's become much more structured and more, you know, uh, organized. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So what you're doing now in coaching, you and Stephen Gilligan started together the uh, International Association for Generative Change. Yeah. IAGC. And, and you have a book, I think, that's just... We do have a new book. And we're generative here. Coaching. Yeah, it's called Generative Coaching, Volume One. There's volume One, yes, very four great. volumes. And this, how many uh, will there be? There's going to be four. Stephen is already finishing Volume Two. I'm starting Volume Three, and then there'll be. Right. So we, they're they're more or less modeled after the modules that we do. Uh, so we usually do a first module in our coach training together, uh-huh. and then uh, one of us does the second one, one of us does the third one, and we do the last one together. And that's sort of the way these books are, also structured but they follow i think the the important thing is that they all follow a basic six-step prototype structure for coaching and i think that's a that's been something that steven and i over the years we started with an idea of doing generative coaching probably gosh 15 years ago or maybe at least and and in the beginning we were just sort of we, we didn't have this six step structure yet, but it was through doing these things together that we realized, yeah, there is a, there's a natural structure that we're doing, even though we have different styles, even though we're using different kinds of methodologies and tools, we always knew what was where we were going and we could work together because there was this sense of, well, what's this path that we're following this path of transformation. And that's where, so all, all of these books are, are based essentially around the different ways that you can do these six fundamental steps that we would say are necessary for any type of coaching. So um, what is in your lexicon, what is generative coaching? What is, how is that different from any other coaching that's out there? Yeah. Well, so, so the key word there, of course, is generative and, you know, probably the, this, the word that's closest to generative is creative. Um, 
but but generative also has a different implication to it than just any type of creativity because there's 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 you know you can have a incremental creativity but idea of generative is it's you're creating something new so when somebody does something generative it's usually you know it's like disruptive if you think of generative technologies so if somebody's creating something new and it's game changing and so the way we define it is that a lot of traditional coaching which is great you know is is i'm basically helping somebody refine what they already know how to do if you take what does a what does a sports coach do what does a tennis coach do you you know you're taking something that's known there's a way to do it and you're helping somebody get better and better at it well what about if you've never done it before? You know, what about if nobody's ever done it before? What if you're entering into, you know, it's just like we had to in this past, uh, these past months of pandemic, you've got to do everything differently, you know? So now you've got to create it all from scratch. And so that's largely what generative coaching is about is it's, uh, and, and very often what you're going to find even in any kind of traditional coaching process you know, some things people will already know how to do. I mean, a, a typical question in NLP would be something like, can you remember a time when you did something like this before? Mm-hmm. And then you kind of use that as the resource. But if somebody says, no, I've never done anything like this before, uh, I'm kind of completely new territory, then you, you, you have to, you know, have a different way of approaching it. And that's what generative change is about. It's, it's this idea of um, whenever you want to or have to do something that is unprecedented and uh and then you know that what that means and and of course uh, what our, a lot of our steps are about is you if you haven't done it before and and, and you, you don't even know what the outcome is going to be you know because a, a lot of times typically in a coaching process or even an nlp process you get what's called a well-defined outcome or a smart goal well if you go, well, I have no idea what it's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to be like. You know, I only know that it's going, it's, it's that way. It's in that direction. I don't know. You know, it's like if you ask Steve Jobs, when he started developing the, you know, iPad, what was going to be on it in the end, you don't know, you know, we're, we're going to figure that out. We're going to create that. Mm-hmm. So this is what uh, gender, the generative part of generative coaching is okay. Uh, what's the stuff that that's new i haven't done before i've got to bring it into some kind of an expression so would you do generative coaching with like let's say hypothetically a a coach listener to this podcast um had taken a generative coaching (laughs) certification course from you and were generative coaches if they set up shop and and somebody you know rang them up and said, yeah, I want to do some coaching for you with you. Would they do generative coaching with whomever knocks on their door? You could certainly you could. I mean, so what generative coaching always starts with uh, is and what we call an intention. Well, first of all, actually it starts with what we call a coach state and the coach state is a, it's a form of a generative state. It's an acronym that stands for getting into getting your your filters into a certain state to actually be able to do something meaningful and productive so what does it stand for what's the acronym so the acronym c-o-a-c-h the first c is to be centered in yourself so especially especially would say in the physical center of the body which is the belly center not just in the head you know but actually completely centered in the self so that you're connected to you know uh 
you're, you're, you're basically you're present in all of your, you know, um, I would say in all of your somatic presence, if you will. And then the O is to be open. So any, I mean, any performance art, if you've ever done dance or singing or martial arts, you always start centering because it's like, okay, I'm here. I'm, you know, I'm grounded. I'm, I'm ready. And then you open. And so the opening is being open to possibilities. You know, I've got to be open to, you know, open head, open my mind, open my heart, open to, you know, what's there. Then the A of coach is to be alert, attentive, aware, you know, so uh, now, so I've centered, I'm open, and now I'm, I'm aware of what's happening around me, but I'm also extremely aware of what's happening in me, because awareness is key, right? If you don't have awareness, we know with this in NLP, if I'm not aware of my own programming, I'm run by it. You know, if I'm aware of it, I've got choices about it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that awareness then brings the possibility of new choices. Then the third, or the second C, the, the fourth letter of coach is connected. And here is where we, we want to connect to multiple intelligences. So not just verbal intelligence, but, you know, head connected to heart, you know, emotional intelligence connected to belly, intuition connected to body, connected to earth, connected to what we call a field, which is the bigger systems that we are part of. So the sense of connection, you know, I'm, I'm on, I'm here and I'm online, you know, all systems go. Then the, the H of coach is what we call, uh, you can call it holding a space. Sometimes we call it hospitality, hospitable, which means I can actually hold the space for whatever is happening from a state of curiosity, creativity, and resourcefulness. So now it's like, so this idea of coach state is basically I'm ready. I'm, I'm in the best version of myself that I can be in this moment. The second step, and this relates to your question is, okay, so now we would say, what's your intention, which is different than what's your specific goal? Mm -hmm. Because an intention is more general. You know, my intention could be, uh, my intention is to grow my business. My intention is to heal a relationship. My intention is to heal myself. So, and, and we, one of the things we do is we actually limit the expression of the intention to five words or less in, in, on purpose. Because if you start going blah, 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 mm -hmm. A, you're too specific and B, you're getting too much up in the head. And then we say, in addition to these five words or less, what's your image? What picture do you have of that intention? And very importantly, what's your somatic model of it? Show me with your body what that would look like. If you couldn't say it, how would you show me with your body what that intention is? Even if it's an intention for my business, show it, show that to me with your body. And that starts a whole set of, uh, this is what, you know, you're beginning a whole set of creative processes towards that. Then after that, so I've got my centered in myself in this coach state, I've got this intention, which is a direction. Then we start connecting out to, we say, the field of resources. And the field of resources, of course, could be my own, but it's also anything with, with the idea of a field is it's what is unseen and yet is, is influencing. So you, you can have, a, your, in your field could be your, your teachers that you've, you know, the, the sort of uh, tradition that you've come from. It's part of your culture. You have a family field. There's a there's a, you know, the nature is a field. So this idea of realizing a, a key part of generative co coaching and generative change is that 
realizing that we are actually what's what uh, Arthur Kessler would call and and uh, also uh, um, uh, what's his name um, uh, Ken Wilber <laughs> in integral studies calls a holon. We're a holon, meaning I'm a whole person. I'm made up of other holes, you know, both physically and psychologically. So I've got, you know, I've got a whole hand. The hand has whole fingers. The fingers have whole digits. The, those digits have cells. The cells have molecules. Da, da, da. But I'm also like a cell in a bigger system. I'm part of a bigger system. I'm part of a family system, a culture. Da, da, da. So this idea that I'm, I want to really connect out to that whole field of resources. And then from there, this is the next step is you start moving into action so start going towards that intention and there's a whole different ways that you would coach somebody to do that uh we we do a lot of work with uh, you probably know about you know the disney imagineering strategy so mm -hmm. storyboarding out steps but then what happens of course is you inevitably and invariably start to meet obstacles uh, and we would say that those obstacles are an absolutely essential part of the creative process. Uh, that, you know, most people think they're a problem. We go, you, if you don't have them, you're not going to, there's no creativity going to happen. Um, and, and obstacles are natural. You know, as soon as I say my intention is to be happier, I'm calling upon all of the opposite forces to come and get me. You know? <laughs> um and it's going to happen, you know, as soon as I say, I just want to, you know, I just want to uh, go towards this, this healthier me, everything that is responsible for you know, getting in the way is going to start showing up. And what we would say is that we want to meet those obstacles, we want to transform those obstacles, rather than try to get rid of them. We, we actually would say, especially when they're inner obstacles, that, you know, we know from NLP, we'd say there's a deeply positive intention there. We right. don't want to lose that. There's a huge amount of energy there. I don't want to lose that. I want to be able to take all of that force and utilize it uh, creatively. And this is where, like, uh, we use a lot the metaphor of Aikido, right? I want mm -hmm. to Aikido it. I don't want to, I don't want to kill it. Right. So, so that's a big part of generative change as well. And generative coaching is we welcome the obstacles, we look for the obstacles, we invite the obstacles, uh, especially inner obstacles. Uh, but we, and we would say, anyway, if an outer obstacle meets an inner obstacle, you basically have an unsolvable problem. If an outer obstacle meets inner resources, you've got a, you know, potentially achievable challenge. So you're always wanting to, you know, uh, be, be, stay in this generative place. And then finally, what we would say is that since, since it's generative and you're working on an intention, there's not going to necessarily be ultimately an endpoint. You know, I, I, my intention could generate, you know, a, a dozen outcomes. Sure. So where we would, and we would, we ought tend to say as well that at the end of any coaching session, nothing has actually changed yet you know you've opened the possibility for change but unless you put that into practice mm -hmm. nothing's going to happen you know you've got you've got this new possibility so all coaching any form of coach i i coach my son's baseball team we spent three times as much practicing as they did playing the game you know you have to so we would say okay 
at the end of any coaching process should be, what's your practice? What do you, and, and in fact, we would, we would say, unless somebody commits to at least 30 minutes of practice a day, it's probably not worth taking, <laughs> taking on as a client. And if you're a client and you're not willing to practice at least 30 minutes a day, you're not, you know, you're basically unmotivated to change. Yeah, that's so, really true. Yeah, as, a, as a former piano teacher, Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. I can I can vouch for that. You know, I used to always try to guess when when a students would a new crop of students would come in in the fall, you know, which ones would be really successful. And I'd I'd look at their enthusiasm or you know they're they're just wow I, they slept with their piano book they just loved it so much. But it ultimately what it's, it came down to was how much they practiced. Practice, yeah, yeah. It's that's we say knowledge is only a rumor until it's in the muscle. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't get in the muscle. It stays a rumor. So, so um, just real quick about your um, acronyms. Um, yeah. What's the crash state? Great question. So, yes, we, we contrast coach with crash uh, where we say, you know, so coach coach is where the channel is open. Right. We would say, which is uh, that that's just a term that comes from Martha Graham, who said, you know, uh, basically, I know that one. I know that quote. Yeah, it's a great quote. Your your business to keep the channel open. Yeah, it doesn't uh, matter if you think it's good. It's not your chat. Not your not your not your job. Just so so open. right exactly. Um, your business to keep the channel. Open. So so the crash is is the opposite of that. You could say it's the it's where um, instead of centered, I'm contracted. Instead of open, I'm reactive. So that's the C and the R. Instead of alert and aware, I'm caught in analysis paralysis, you know, up in the head. Instead of connected to all of these, you know, all of these different intelligences, I'm I'm separate, separated from my field, separated from my head, separated from my feeling. And instead of the sense of holding from this place of hospitality, it's it's hostility, you know, Hmm. it's... uh, hurt, hurt, hatred, you know, those kind of H things. Now, and, and of course, that's a, that's a big spectrum there, because it's not that I'm just completely in coach or completely in crash. Mm-hmm. And this is where uh, the whole coaching process comes in. We would say the essence of any coaching process, but especially generative coaching is I've got to be, uh, no matter what's happening, I've got to be enough in that coach state that I can stay generative, that I can, you know, deal with what's happening. Now it does, it's not binary. It's not all or nothing. It's not, I'm in it or I'm out. of. It's not, I'm either in coach or I'm crash. So usually one of the first things that we're teaching people to do and that we do, of course, with our client is to calibrate where they are on a, on a range, on a scale, where if you put zero is I'm, you know, somebody's completely out, I'm completely crashed. 10 is I'm in this, you know, fully generative state. This is where, uh, in fact, uh, some of Timothy Galway's inner game ideas come in. You, you know, he talks about being in the zone, a zone <laughs> of excellence. Well, the zone is not a fixed point. It's as long as I'm in a particular zone, I'm going to have a chance. So we would say that zone is probably at seven out of 10 or more in the coach state. If I start, if I'm getting down to six out of 10, half and half, I'm kind of half in there, half out things are going to start to deteriorate rapidly. You know, my, my capacity for generativity drops. Mm-hmm. When you get down to zero, there's nothing generative at all. You're just repeating, you know, it's, you're just repeating old survival strategies. So 
to actually be able to get to this place to do something different, to do something new, you need to be enough in those coach qualities, centered enough. Oh, you know, not, I don't have to be 100%, but I have to be centered enough. I've got to be open enough. I've got to be aware enough. I've got to be connected to all these resources enough. And I've got to be able to hold what's happening enough. I, I don't have to do it perfectly. Yeah. But it does, does sort of answer a question that I haven't even asked you yet, which is being that this is the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, I often ask my guests, what do you think is an essential coaching skill? And I think that's the answer is to be able to calibrate that and be able to get somebody to go from the crash state to sure. a coach yeah. state. Yeah, I think that's I think that's one of them. I, you know, I, we would also say that that the our we have this thing when we start we say okay we've had we combine our 45 years of more of experience so our 90 years plus experience here's our here's our most complex model and we draw a big circle and a little circle <laughs> and so the now the little circle is the content and the big circle is you know the the process that's holding that but we could say in this sense though it's it's the relationship that so that in fact what we would say that the key thing in any coaching process is going to be that relationship between coach and client without that that's the we would say that's the container we talk about a coach container which means that myself and my client we have to have resonance between us and we both have to be enough in a coach state that we can go somewhere so I do think that there's an aspect, uh, an essential coaching skill of, of connecting, you know, because we would say that a generative relationship, first, first a de- a, one simple definition of generativity is that one plus one will make more than two, right? So one plus one makes three, four, five. So that's, it's creating something more, just like, a, you know, uh, hydrogen and oxygen, make water they don't just make a combination of hydrogen and oxygen something new comes out of that and what we would say and this is a very key part of generative change and generative coaching is uh you know we sometimes contrast we would say in in therapy the answers come from the therapist the client is broken the therapist has the solution i'm going to fix you with my you know allergy technique or my phobia technique or something in, in coaching, it gets flipped. The client has the answer. The coach is going to ask questions and draw out from the client. In generative coaching, we say the, the answer comes not from the coach or the client. It comes from the relationship. It might, be, it might be expressed through the coach or expressed through the client, but it's coming out of the relationship. Yeah. I will say things that I would never say by myself. <laughs> you know, I would never even occur to me. Because once I get in this relationship, something comes to me. So a lot of what we'll be saying in, in, and this is where generativity comes in. It's not that I think this, I know that it's that this comes to me, right? Right now in this moment, this is what's coming to me. And it's coming to me because of the quality of interaction that we're having. Just like Mozart used to say, he'd said, I can't sit down and make the music, you know? I can put myself into a state where the music comes to me. Mm-hmm. And that's why he was a genius, right? It's because it's generative. It's not like I'd used all, I, I figured this out by using all the rules of music and figuring this out from stuff I've done before. It's like, whew, this is coming to me from this bigger field yeah. that I'm part you know, of. It, it strikes me interestingly that um, 
early NLP, of course, and we, we were taught everybody knew, um, you know, rapport skills that you yes. matched, matched and mirrored in order to get to this state of rapport with the person. Yeah, yeah. But um, it seemed to be like from the outside in that if I, yeah. I move the way you move and talk the way you talk, then we'll yeah. create this thing. And, you know, I've, I've, I've made you be in rapport with me. And, you know, but, but this seems much actually getting to this, the result that you, that, that wanted in the first place. Yeah. By just like sort of opening to it, not yeah. trying to put it on, but trying to just you know. yeah, it's it's what uh, what I would, we would call resonance, which is different. You know, resonance is different because you can't have resonance one way. Right. <laughs> resonance is the you know it's the it's what is you know vibrating. I mean, literally vibrating in the in the physics, yeah. sense, but it's what's sure. vibrating between you. And so uh, yeah, you know what what we would say is that it's it's. Um, in fact, a lot of times when when we're working with somebody, we will share that. Somebody will say something and we'll stop and say, you know, when you say that, it makes, I, I get this feeling here in my body. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering if that's something that you have too. Or or when you say that, this picture, all, all of a sudden, uh, this I got this sense of lightness coming. So we'll often share what's what's resonating in us with the client. Not you know, not because just because you're looking for that place of of connection of resonance. Mm-hmm. So it's really different than I'm going to move my hand the way you move your hand. It's, right, 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 right. Yeah, actually, I would even say when you move your hand that way, this is how it influences me. Right. And so you're 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 trying to get. We're ultimately trying to get from me and you to we. Yes. Yeah. And we would say it's that we is when you really are coaching. You, yeah. And I think anybody who's, if you've really had a good coaching experience, you feel that anyway. Absolutely. It's no longer one of the, it's like, it's like, I, I, you know, I, my, my wife is a dancer and we were, you know, we, we do, a lot, I've done a lot of different kinds of dancing, but there's a certain moment when you go like in, in tango or something, you don't know who's leading and who's following anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The dance is leading you both. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that's so. beautiful. Great place to leave it. Um, Robert, gosh, I feel like we just started. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope we can do this again sometime. I don't yeah. want to put you on the spot or anything, make any promises, but boy, I'd like to do this again sometime. Um, yeah. yeah, okay, good. I'll do that. <laughs> um, I was um, Scout and I was an Eagle Scout. <laughs> you were an Eagle Scout? I was an Eagle Scout. Why am yeah. I not surprised? Um, <laughs> I never even went. I got as far as Cub Scouts and thought, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that Boy Scout stuff. It's far too militaristic. I'm not doing that. I was more like John Grinder, I think. Anyway. Um, Although he was, John was in the military. Wasn't oh, he was he? Oh, never mind. Oh, you didn't know that? John, John was a Green Beret. Oh, no, I did know that. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. Getting back to what I was trying to <laughs> <laughs> if people want to get hold of you, Robert Diltz, how would they go about that? Not that it's hard because they just Google Robert Diltz and you're all over the place. Yeah, you can, I was going to say you can Google Robert Diltz. So you can go <laughs> robertdiltz.com or, or nlpu.com. NLPU, uh, yeah. Beautiful. Those will get you there. All right. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being here. Well, you're very welcome. Yeah, I do look forward. It's a lot of fun, Doug. I, I hope I think everybody can, can tell that. <laughs> this, this is a uh, yeah a, a joyful conversation. Thank you. Well, that does it for another episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed having you here. Hey, if you want more information about Sleight of Mouth, you can find it at EssentialCoachingSkills.com, or you might even check out SleightofMouth.org. That's a nice website, too. Thanks. Stay safe. Stay curious.